President Boyd K. Packer has been quoted as saying, true doctrine understood changes attitudes and behavior. The study of the doctrine of the gospel will improve behavior quicker than a study of behavior will improve behavior, end quote. Shima Boffman has devoted her professional career to seeking to create policy reforms related to incarceration, but she recently reached a conclusion that could change the rest of her legal career. She realized in looking at the work she has done that there is something that has a greater power to heal than any amount of policy reform, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shima Boffman is a professor of criminal law at the University of Utah. She is a national expert on bail and pretrial prediction, and her current scholarship examines criminal law, criminal justice policy, prosecutors, drugs, search and seizure, international law, and terrorism, as well as race and violent crime. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be All In, the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Pearson, and I am so honored to have my friend Shima Boffman on the line with me today. Shima, welcome. Thank you. This is so fun for me, and I have been looking forward to it. I have had the opportunity to, to interview Shima once before, and I just felt like I learned so much, even even despite the fact that we're friends, Shima, and I value your friendship, but I felt, I feel like it's different when you have the chance to talk in an interview type setting. And so I have tried to pick some questions this time that will dig into some different aspects of your life. And um, I'm so excited to learn more about your experiences. So to start us off, you told me in a text that you feel like your childhood, which was in Iran or began in Iran, was magical in so many ways. I wonder if you wouldn't mind starting by telling people the fairy tale of sorts, which is your childhood and why it felt magical. Yeah. I mean, I believe it was magical and miraculous, but I think my kids might call it more traumatic or depressing, (laughs) but I'll (laughs) let you judge for yourself. So I was born in Iran to my mother who was a political activist and she wanted democracy and freedoms. They didn't have in Iran and worked to oust the Shah at the time. It was Reza Shah. He was a king. She was Muslim and wanted to have the ability to practice her religion and wear hijab if she wanted to. And the Shah was trying to westernize Iran and had prohibited covering of hair for religious reasons. So she and the activists were successful in ousting the Shah in 1979. And then with a vacuum of power, the Ayatollah Khomeini came into power and then went the opposite direction to force people to then veil or hijab and made converting from Islam a punishable crime by death. And so my mother continued to fight for democracy. She was imprisoned by the Islamic regime with a 10-year sentence. Meanwhile, my dad was a neurosurgeon performing surgeries on the front line of the Iran-Iraq war. And in a miraculous event, had the opportunity to treat a politically connected mullah, uh, the religious leaders were called mullahs, with an urgent medical issue. And the treatment was successful, and my father was able to request a favor. And so my father asked him if he could help release my mother and his sister, who were both in political prison serving together at the time. 
And during the time my mom was in prison, she had this dream that she was flying in this airplane above these beautiful fall colors. And somehow she knew she was in America. And at the time, she just thought this was so crazy because she's in prison with, you know, year one of her 10 year sentence. She thought she didn't know what to make of the dream. But shortly after my dad helped this mullah, he was able to successfully get my mother and his sister out of prison in two and a half years rather than 10. And shortly thereafter, an opportunity came up for him to do a research fellowship at UCLA, which was unheard of at this time because it was during the war and no one was getting out uh, at this time of Iran. So my parents jumped on the opportunity when I was seven, and then we ended up in America. And within six months of coming to America, this brave uh, Persian convert who worked with my dad had this prompting to invite our family to her Christmas party. And she talked herself out of it a couple of times, but the third time she listened. And I love that it took her the third time because it makes me feel better <laughs> because often it takes me a couple of times to listen to a prompting. But anyway, at the, at the party, my mom noticed this church pamphlet that she had on her shelf that talked about families being together forever. And my mom wanted to learn more. And so, you know, we joined the church and because of that decided to remain in America, which made us so happy as kids, even though it was a struggle for my parents to start all over again. My dad was 40 at the time and, and in a fulfillment of my mother's dream in prison, they ended up in Hudson Valley, New York, which has, you know, some of the prettiest fall colors of anywhere in the country. And so, you know, you ask, is this depressing or is there, is there magic here? (laughs) But for me, the magic was that we left a war torn country right? Where Saddam Hussein was bombing. We had to hide in our basements with towels on our faces in case there were chemical weapons. And at seven, I was had, I had to wear a hijab at school and cover my body. And it was so hot. <laughs> and, you know, we were living during a war where there weren't supplies. And, you know, maybe once a month, you can get a candy bar at a store. And then we came to America, fast forward, right? And we had freedom to make choices to wear what we wanted. We could worship and, and convert religions. I was giddy. I remember when I went to a, a supermarket for the first time and saw how many different types of Cheetos there were. Not just that, that there were Cheetos, but just all the different cheese puffs and chips. And, and I mean, all, it's it's miraculous. It really was for me at the time. And I loved going to church so much, even though I didn't understand a lot at first. But I loved seeing the hymns. Like I remember these vivid memories as a kid and thinking, America is so great. (laughs) And I just, you know, reminded me as I was thinking of this, I looked at the scripture that's really always kind of impacted me and thought about our family is where Lehi says in Second Nephi one five, he says, he said, notwithstanding our afflictions, we have obtained a land of promise, a land which is choice above all their other lands, a land which the Lord God had covenanted with me should be a land for the inheritance of my seed. Yea, the Lord covenanted this land unto me and to my children forever. And this is the part I love. And also all those who should be led out of other countries by the hand of the Lord. I feel that I can't deny that our our family was led out of Iran just by pure miracle through the hand of the Lord. And we've always had this, this reverence for that miracle. I love that so much. And I want to make sure that I understand one part of your mom's political activism, because I think it it can kind of set a stage for what we're going to talk about in the rest of this interview. But your mom, so basically she was concerned about religious freedom on either side. So initially she was wanting there to be the ability to practice religion, but then she didn't want people to be forced. Is that right? 
Exactly. They want, she wanted a Western democracy like America where people could choose to worship or not to worship. And then of course, you know, it went from one extreme to the, to the other. So interesting. You mentioned that there were some things that were really hard and, and you specifically said a few of the things that were going on in Iran that would make it traumatic. But I imagine that coming to the United States, there are a lot of things that would be hard as well and assimilating to an entirely new culture. What was that like for you and your family? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. I, I, I feel like we have these buttoned up versions of our stories that focus only on the the mercies and the miracles and kind of gloss over the pain and hardship. And I feel like it ignores this kind of heart wrenching middle part of our story and, you know, kind of goes to the happily ever after and ignores the parts that don't end happily. And I think while I love to personally focus on gratitude and blessings and think about the positive, I think in solidarity with people who struggle or are struggling right now in different aspects of life, I think it's good to, to recognize some of that struggle and the hard. For sure. And so along, you know, with the miraculous conversion, the faith that I saw, you know, I have seen racism and pain. Um, you know, my mom was in prison two and a half years when I was really young. And my dad was a war doctor and wasn't there. So we were kind of passed around uh, amongst family members. I, you know, faced racism growing up, being a kid who didn't fit in. I wanted a different name growing up. I wanted to be called Kimberly. And I wished I had blonde hair and, and white skin. And, you know, I went from being an awkward child who spoke two words, yes and no, and got them confused and felt like a burden to my teacher and, you know, was accused of having bombs, called a terrorist, beat up once because of my ethnicity. My parents had to work nights and weekends and, you know, to create this brand new life for us. And so, you know, I've experienced nowhere near the worst of anything as far as assimilation or racism or any of those things. But, but I think it's important to acknowledge those things as well that, you know, hard things happen to lots of people and there's a lot of struggle that people go through. And, but I do need to add too that I'm so filled with gratitude that we were able to be saved from the war, that I found the church of Jesus Christ and the best experiences we had integrating in the U.S. and assimilating. I have to say, we're through members of the church who are so generous with us. They invite us to dinner. They mentored us. They brought us Christmas one year. They let us play with their kids. And I know my parents love the church because the love they felt from the people in it. And, you know, I just, I think that's just something that we've all been grateful for. And also the freedoms that we've enjoyed here. You know, I think this land is a consecrated one. It's a land of liberty, as Lehi prophesied, and a real, a real beacon to the world and so many ways, I feel like. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I love the way you put that. I wanted, I wondered, I know that you were originally raised a Muslim. How would you say as a Latter-day Saint today that that, that, that foundation um, plays a role or influences your faith now? Yeah. My parents both came from spiritual roots. So my dad's mother got married at the age of nine in this small town on the border of Iran and Iraq to her cousin who was 30, which was totally acceptable at the time. <laughs> they had eight children. But the coolest thing is she taught herself how to read from the Quran. 
and taught her kids the principles of the Quran. And really the principles of the Quran, a lot of it parallels the Old Testament and even recognizes Jesus as a prophet. So my dad had this, you know, upbringing and, you know, they strongly believed in education. My dad was uh, the eldest son and because they couldn't afford to send everybody to school, they sent him and then he was able to educate his sisters, which really gave them this great start. And I think this importance of family was really instilled in him as well as my mom. So she, she came from these deep spiritual roots. Her mom uh, had an unfortunate, you know, divorce because her husband left her for a woman that was, you know, the, the age of her second daughter. And, but yet she remained faithful her entire life. And, you know, I think this deep faith in God that came to both of my parents and this deep commitment to family in the Muslim faith is what made my mother so attracted to the church. I mean, the first principle that resonated with her is that families can be together forever because she really cared so much about that foundation. I think that's something that Muslims and and uh, people from the Church of Jesus Christ share today is that real kind of preeminence that we put on the family. And I think it's a really profound principle that for people that have lost loved ones, and I think sometimes we take it for granted, but I was talking to a friend uh, recently who's from Rwanda, and she's lost almost every single person in her family due to the genocide, except for maybe one that's in Norway. And she recently joined the church. And it was this amazing feeling to be able to talk to her about the temple and talk to her about the fact that she can be sealed to her family and be with them forever. And it's, I think sometimes we forget how profound that is. And it is something that other faiths would enjoy. I think that's what my mom was so drawn to the church of how can I be with my family forever? I think one other thing I would mention about the Islamic faith uh, that's been so interesting is that so the the consequences you think of the islamic theocracy that took over as i mentioned in 79 it's been in place since then and people don't have the chance to choose their religion based on their conscience and so they have to worship islam they can't convert and this has been really damaging for the for people's faith and i think what the lesson was when i've gone back a few times is that the consequences in iran of of the lack of faith are the same as what would have happened if the plan of Satan were to come into effect, right? Hmm. That there's a lack of true faith and a rejection of religion and God with politics. So I don't like my political leaders. I don't like God. And it's really become this this horrible thing where the younger generation connect faith and government and they want to have they can't separate the two yeah they don't want to have anything to do with god because they don't like the oppression of their government and so i think you know we see the lack of free agency in action and the consequences are dire and christ's way is the only way that would have ever worked and so we know that theoretically in the gospel but i think having seen it in iran and, and seeing it now i mean we all can see it uh it's a true you know, it's a truth that Christ weighs the only way. We need free agency. Otherwise, we we won't have the faith that we have. I think that's such an excellent point. And it's interesting to think about. I love that you highlighted the fact that you are a convert to the church. But even for you, it was cool to hear another more recent convert reminds you of like the joy of learning about aspects of the gospel for the first time. I just recently was interviewing somebody and I said, they were telling me how they always felt like they could pray, but there was never the idea that God might respond, that you could, you could actually receive revelation for yourself. And whoever it was that I was interviewing said, you know, when, when that 
when you've never been taught that, that idea is like revolutionary. Hmm. And I had never thought of it that way. And so I think it's so cool to recognize like these things that sometimes even as people that maybe have joined the church, um, it hasn't always been a part of their lives, but you know, we grow accustomed to the things that we believe and and it's easy to take those things for granted. I also love the point that you made about agency and how important that aspect is of our Heavenly Father's plan. I wonder, Shima, so you now are an attorney and, and a law professor. I wonder how did your experiences growing up shape what you wanted to do professionally? Obviously, your mom's experiences have to have played a role. And at what point did you did you know you wanted to be an attorney? Yeah. You know, honestly, law school was something I happened upon after I kind of failed to succeed at picking one of the acceptable career choices for my immigrant parents. (laughs) I mean, I decided no on medicine, no on dentistry. It's the last minute I settled on taking the LSAT in February, my senior year at BYU, thinking that, you know, maybe I can just last minute make this happen. And I walked across the street to BYU Law School from BYU and, you know, they let me in for the next fall. So I was lucky. (laughs) But I remember vividly, this will give you a good example of what I'm dealing with here. When I told my parents that I decided to attend law school and how excited I was because I received a full ride scholarship and I thought they'll be so excited. They don't have to pay for this. And, you know, as I mentioned, my dad was a neurosurgeon in Iran. He was also a neurologist in the U.S. And so from a young age, he made it very clear that we are all expected to become doctors. (laughs) <laughs> so I knew they'd be disappointed that I wasn't going to become a doctor, but I figured they'd be understanding and thrilled that, you know, graduate school is now going to be paid for. They don't have to worry about it. And, you know, after I told them, there's a few moments of silence. And finally, my dad says in Farsi, uh, you know, something you, every daughter yearns to hear from her dad after making this, you know, career defining decision. <laughs> Shima Tambalasti. And what that means is Shima you are lazy. <laughs> so this is this will give you a, very, a lot of insight into my family and, and how that decision went down. <laughs> that is amazing. That's so funny. So so talk to me a little bit about how you feel like once you kind of got into your legal career, how maybe your experiences shaped kind of where your interest ended up landing as far as law goes? Yeah. I mean, I entered law school with this desire to serve and I thought I wanted to kind of do do something with this opportunity I've had to come to the United States. I have this huge blessing, this huge miracle. And so I wanted to kind of give back. And so that's where the desire to eventually end up doing criminal justice ended up. So I knew with law, there's enough social justice I could do. And, and then I ended up being really interested after law school in criminal law. So interesting. Okay. So during your Fulbright, you had an experience that led you, you said to kind of grapple with justice and criminal defense. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I had an experience living in Malawi that really tested my convictions about the right of each person to have a excellent legal advocate and about and mercy and justice. So, so due process and the rule of law and you, you learn in law school are best preserved when each person has the best representation, right? And especially defendant has vigorous defense. So I went to Malawi in 2008 to defend some of the poorest defendants in felony cases. And in Malawi, only people charged with murder are able to get a free attorney. So those with any other felonies 
basically go unrepresented. And so I was able to represent them because I went to law school in a common law country. So I, I kind of did that. And one weekend I was in the northern part of the country and with the help of legal aid staff, we filed 50 bail applications to get people out of jail pre-trial in this period where they were languishing, just waiting for charges and nothing had been filed. And these individuals had been charged with various felonies, right? You, you name them, burglary, arson, you know, robbery, assault, rape, you know, all these things. So I come back very excited about my, you know, all the work I'd done, but my house had been burglarized and my guard who was standing guard of the house had been assaulted really badly for these guys to get in and get our stuff. A large amount of cash was stolen that was locked away to buy a car. So then, you know, all of a sudden the money that we had saved to, to buy a car was gone. It was devastating. And it made me really grapple with my beliefs in justice and why I was there to serve, right? I had been helping people to get out of jail who had allegedly burglarized homes, just like mine. So people who had cut people just like my dear guard that we loved. And, you know, did I believe in these principles of justice and vigorous representation and, you know, Christ-like service when it came to helping people charged with the crimes I was affected by? And it just was really difficult. And I honestly wanted to hang my head up and say, let's just go back to America because this stuff doesn't happen as often here. But I, I stuck it out and I ended up it ended up really solidifying my belief in the need for mercy for the accused in a real way where despite the harm I had suffered personally, I understood that no, overall, this is right, right? People deserve mercy and justice and the rule of law should still prevail despite hard things happening, even to me. And it really just kind of solidified my, okay, this, I really do believe this because I'm still going to keep defending these people who did harm to me, you know? So it was rough. Fascinating. So in the years since, not only you, but also your sister have, you've both been very involved in legal reform. You in particular have fought to create reform for those who are incarcerated. I wonder how does the fact that your mom was once incarcerated influence the work that you've done and the compassion that you have for those who are in that situation? Absolutely. It's had a profound impact because I know that some people are incarcerated unfairly and I have empathy for people and families of those who are incarcerated, regardless of why, because I know it takes a toll. And with my mother's example of, you know, fighting for policy change and this profound pressure of feeling that God miraculously saved us and brought us to this land of opportunity, I really felt this that I needed to show Heavenly Father that I recognized his hand, right? And bringing us to this, this land. And I don't want to waste my opportunity in America to, to give back, to try to contribute in this small way after all the blessings I'd received. And so I decided, you know, I, I wanted to work in criminal justice policy and help those that were at the kind of bottom of the social hierarchy that might feel shame or that feel forgotten. And I remember my first case, you'll love this because it just ties back to my mom, but the, my first big case after my clerkship was with a prisoner and he was a Jewish rabbi. It was in 2006 and he was prohibited from the Bureau of Prisons. He served in federal prison from praying um, at the right times in a clean place. So he was stuck praying in a cell, but because the cells, prison cells have toilets in them, they're unclean according to Jewish law. And so he wasn't able to pray. And I just remember feeling the spirit so strongly, you know, when you're doing something 
something and you're just like, I know this is right. I felt that every time I went to that prison and saw him, I was like, this feels right. I should be here. And, you know, helping this man of faith to try to get an accommodation to be able to practice his religion. Because again, it took me full circle to my mom's own experience with trying to fight for religious freedom. And, you know, one more thing I'll, I'll mention too, I think, I feel like becoming a Christian, I think that was a huge piece of it, right? With my mom converting and then, and then us converting as children and, a, and being a good disciple of Christ, it really kind of give, gave us more compassion for those that were incarcerated. And, you know, the, the Savior specifically mentions visiting people in prison, right? Of all the things, there's not a ton that we have that the, that the Savior said, but he, he, he mentions that. And Isaiah talking about the Lord says that he'll open the prison for those who are bound. In Psalms, it says that the Lord will set prisoners free. I just, I don't believe that Christ Christ will only liberate those spiritually in prison. I think sometimes we talk about it in those terms. I do think that he will also liberate those who are physically imprisoned and who want to follow him. And I think, you know, we all need his grace to forgive us. And, and I just think, you know, sometimes that the harsh treatment that we have of those who have committed crimes might have something to do with our inability to see sins in ourselves. And so anyway, those thoughts and thinking about Christ, right, and his own he himself was convicted of crime and convicted, sentenced to die. So many great prophets were. You think of Paul, right? David, Abinadi, Nephi, and Lehi in the Book of Mormon, Alma the Younger, Amulek, Joseph Smith. So many great people have been incarcerated. Moses. Moses killed a man, right? Then repented, saw God, became one of the greatest prophets and, and was able to restore the gospel, uh, help, you know, help Joseph Smith restore the gospel. So I just think there's, there's a real tie with becoming a Christian and this, and, you know, people that are incarcerated, the least among us. So I, I felt that pull, um, to help the, those people. Well, hopefully people get a sense, Shima, I love listening to you talk about this because you're so passionate about it that it like you can feel it when you're talking. Um, but also, you know, it makes me think so my dad is a lawyer in North Carolina and you know, my whole life, I've heard people make jokes about lawyers and attorneys and my dad just kind of like takes it, you know, doesn't really say anything. But a few years ago, I asked him, I was supposed to be giving a devotional for something about the name of Christ, the name that Christ is referred to as advocate. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, I was like, you're, you're much more qualified to speak to this, having been people's advocate than I am. So I wonder if you could share, you know, your thoughts on why people deserve an advocate. Mm -hmm. And my dad talked about how just believing, if we understand and believe that everyone is a child of God, and then we think about the fact that Christ was called an advocate, then in an effort to be a disciple of him, we should advocate for others. And he did a much better job of explaining it than I am. But I think it's really cool when you can take what you do professionally and put it into a gospel context. And and I think that adds greater passion to the work that we do. I love that so much. I think that's so true. Shima, you are now making a big career transition to focusing on how the gospel can heal society and reform individuals better than policy. So after all this time working to do policy reform, you're kind of shifting that your your focus. How did you reach this conclusion? Tell people a little bit about the work that you're going to be doing moving forward and why do you believe that that it's true that the gospel can heal society and reform 
inform individuals better than policy. Yeah. I mean, the COVID pandemic and the storms, earthquakes, civil unrest were all a real poignant reminder to me that life on earth is fragile and that we're in perilous times, like it talks about in, you know, Second Timothy. And it reminded me that my primary purpose on this earth is to build the kingdom of God and to become the best disciple of Christ I can. And I think God kind of taught me this lesson through my scholarship, but though I'll have to mention, I, you know, if I had listened to my mother, I would have figured this out a little bit sooner, but I've been, I've been working since 2008 to reduce mass incarceration through public policy. And a lot of it's through scholarship, but, you know, it started in 2010. I was full of enthusiasm trying to, you know, help solve mass incarceration. And I wanted to make the system more just. So I argued, you know, in 2010, for the first time publicly in this New York Times op-ed that we needed to let people out of prison on bail. And this was kind of a, a new concept at the time. But since then, so many scholars have written about really neat scholarship talking about risk assessments and increasing pretrial supervision and, you know, reducing money bail and all these important things. And what has happened over the last 12 years is hundreds of pending bills, 500 bills passed. It's been called the third generation of bail reform. So huge change in this area. And many jurisdictions changing. It's not an exaggeration to say that every single state has done something on bail reform. So it's, it's been a huge thing. But, but what's the result? And this is the thing that kind of led to my existential crisis is that it's all been a failure. So in the last 15 years, this, the increase in pretrial detention accounts for 99% of the jail growth. And despite, you know, record decreases in arrest and crime, pretrial detention is still getting worse in America. And there's been a 400, you know, 33% increase in detention since 1970. And so basically it's, it's failed, right? All of these policy efforts have failed because my, my goal of ending mass incarceration or even reducing it through bail reform has not worked. And so I, you know, started to real, realize this and, Then I thought, you know, if I'd never whispered a word about bail reform, would things have actually gotten better? Because crime rates have been going down (laughs) and maybe the bail reform has just caused more antagonism and it's gotten worse anyway. But really what it caused me to do was pray. And this existential crisis of like, what am I doing with my career? Am I making things worse? Really made me think about what are the real answers? What what are lasting answers? And what I came to is that incarceration is a symptom of a larger problem. And the larger problems are all solved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this greater lesson is something my mom taught me growing up. And I remember growing up, we were so proud of all of this advocacy my mom did, this policy work to you know obtain freedoms. And what a powerful woman and great example. And she is, and I'm still amazed by her. But <laughs> What she's always said about that experience of serving that we ignored as kids, and I ignored basically growing up, I think, is that she attempted to change policy and politics, but she's always said that only true change that you see comes from changing people's hearts and souls. And she'll say the way Christ did. And so she has chosen the rest of her life to have spiritual change rather than policy change. And so I just kind of understand now at this better level that policy is fickle and it's changeable by people, but changes, changes of the heart, right? From a conversion to the gospel is the only lasting change. And so changing policy is temporary, but changing a creature or a human is lasting. And that's only done through Jesus Christ. And so that's why I'm really excited about this next move. 
Okay, so tell tell us a little bit about what the future looks like, at least hopefully for you. Yeah, so you know, I recently accepted a position at the Wheatley Institute at BYU starting the summer of 2023 to help run a center that looks at what the benefits of religion are to society and how religion can help solve social problems. And I'll also kind of teach criminal law at BYU Law School. I'm going to continue to do the empirical work because I do love data and I think it's so important to make important decisions. and But I'm really most excited to use my faith and the principles of the gospel to help transform society because I know that's where the magic will happen. And, you know, for example, I thought about cool things, intersections of my bail work with this stuff. But when you think about how ministering to people before trial, like could that reduce crime? I, I really think based on previous studies that it can. And what if we set up every inmate who was released with a church if they were interested in for mentoring and they and they minister to those people? And you know, I just think that the the principles of Christ can transform criminal justice. And I have, you know, one beautiful example of that that I found in my time studying bail is there was a woman who lost her son and she attended the trial of the young man who killed her son. And in her grief, she told the boy, I'm going to kill you. After sentencing, then she finds out what prison he he went to and she visited him regularly for for years. And towards the end of his stay, she said, you know, do you have a place to go? And he said, no, I don't. And she said, you know, I would like you to live with me. And she said, when I told you I would kill you, I wanted to kill the person who killed my son. You're no longer that person. And now I want you to be my son. And I want to take care of you from now on. And so, I mean, there's just so much good that can be done by this transformation of a person and and done through Christ. I I got a letter from a another uh, inmate this week who has no idea I'm doing this new work, but it was very profound. He just said, you know, um, he thought that the justice system was aimed to make society better, but instead it creates this downward spiral of defendants. That's his words. And he says that see no way towards redemption. And he said, allowing for redemption and mercy would grant the defendant opportunity to show an acknowledgement of mistakes and a path towards righting the wrongs committed. And I just love that point, right? I mean, if we don't love and forgive people, they'll never improve and, and we'll never be able to leave that hate in our heart. And so I just... I think there's so much room in the future for uh, marrying these criminal justice and mercy and forgiveness principles. And you think of all the principles of the gospel that can help criminal justice. Well, everything that you were just saying, which I agree with, reminded me of one of my favorite quotes by Ezra Taft Benson, which I'm sure you're familiar with this quote, but where he says, the Lord works from the inside out, the world works from the outside in, the world would take people out of the slums, Christ would take the slums out of the people, and then they would take themselves out of the slums. The world would mold men by changing their environment, Christ changes men who then change their environment. The world would shape human behavior, but Christ can change human nature. And I think that that is just so, so true. And, and so I love that, that this is where you've landed and where you're putting your focus. I know because we talked through this process, Shima, that you really saw a lot of personal revelation in making this decision. 
and it's it has big implications for your career moving forward. What does that process, you said you prayed a lot, but what else does that process of seeking personal revelation look like for you? Yeah. I mean, something my husband, Ryan, and I joke about is that he's a very slow, methodical thinker and decision maker. And I'm the kind of rash decision maker. <laughs> I just, dive in head first. Yes, I make decisions very quickly. You know, I decided to marry him after a month. I decided to go to law school in two weeks. I just kind of do that. But with this, it was so different. And I think God really gave me the gift of patience and deliberation, which I'm not usually blessed with when at BYU called me to interview and go back to, you know, teach there. And, you know, the fact that I even gave it a chance, I'm like, I live in Salt Lake, right by the University of Utah. Why, Why would I do that? But they got me in this vulnerable state right before conference where I was, my heart was soft. I was praying <laughs> how I could build the kingdom better and then BYU calls. And I think, okay, well, let me, let me think about this. But um, it was a lot of back and forth. And it took me from October, you know, when I got the first call to June to decide that I was going to BYU. And I've honestly never deliberated that way uh, at that, with that level of openness to a decision where I was like, I'm just going to wait and see what the Lord has not kind of like, I'm leaning one direction and I'm going to kind of push it that way. Right. And so, um, my process again, we talked about prayer, but I read the book of Mormon every day that helped a lot because of the reminders of Christ. I went to the temple every week, um, which I have to say is a lot easier than going once a month. And mostly I was just open to God's will completely, which is not typically how I pray. And so typically I pray with my agenda in mind and I want God to kind of check off his approval to my decisions. But this time I really felt like I gave him a blank canvas and I just told him I was willing to go and do and then let him make of it what I, what he will and, and waited and listened. And there was a lot of silence and a lot of waiting, but I was just very blessed with patience. And he put incredible people in my path that led me to, you know, different pieces that, you know, all the details about, but we don't need to recount all that here. And then at the, at the, at the end of it, I had no choice but to go to BYU. It was just clear. And so it just really taught me that, you know, I really need to do a better job of letting God have this blank canvas and letting him work. And, and it was interesting because I learned later. So God wasn't really trying to make me wait to teach me patience, although it did teach me patience. The position I was looking for, this religion and society and building religion wasn't even available. So actually I learned later, you know, President Oaks and Elder Clark Gilbert were actually working on it at the time. So between, I guess what I say, like November, December to later in the, you know, spring is when they had worked on it. So he was, he wasn't just making me to be patient just to learn that, but I, I learned it wasn't even available. And so, you know, glad, gladly for me, I never, you know, rejected the offer and I waited until the right position came up, but it really was a, a great lesson to me of, giving God a more of a blank canvas in everything. It shouldn't just be with big decisions, but why, why am I always guiding my own path? Like let him guide, right? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's so many good things that you said in there and, and principles that we can pull out. One thing my, my husband and I were just talking recently about how it is interesting that at different times we may feel that we're, we're making decisions in different ways. So like sometimes we are just seeking confirmation. Other times we're seeking direction. And so how we come to the Lord in those instances may look different. Um, but I love that in this instance, it's like, I'm coming with you to you with a, with a blank canvas and I want to do what you want me to do. And I think for some of us, like that can come easier than for others. And, and so I love that you recognize, you know, a need to develop that. 
I also love, and I want to touch on this. So you kind of glossed over this, but you said that you feel like going to the temple every week is easier than going once a month. I heard you say this recently on something else. Tell people what you mean by that. Well, I just think it's once a month feels hard. And I think once a week is something that is more present. It's kind of top of mind. If you think, okay, I have to do this every week. I don't know. It's been, it's just like a, it's a good weekly habit. I think, uh, it's harder for me to keep things as a monthly habit. So, um, but yeah, and I, and I love the blessing. So by the next week I'm ready to go. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love that. And and I wanted to make sure people caught that. And then (laughs) I also love because we're in the month leading up to general conference. I think it's an important reminder that when we are seeking answers to questions, like we can come with soft hearts, like you said, a willing, a willingness to be taught and receive answers to even, you know, professional questions and and receive guidance. I think sometimes when we experience professional success, or even when we've been through really formative experiences associated with different parts of our identity. There's, you know, layers on layers of what we use to identify ourselves. I think sometimes when we've had those experiences, it can be really easy to define ourselves primarily by what we do professionally or these other aspects of our identity. But I've been really impressed, Shima, since I met you to see how much you define yourself as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I wondered why is that so important to you? How do you keep that in check? How do you keep your identity as a child of God and a disciple of Christ at the forefront or at the core of who you are? Oh, that's kind of you say. President Nelson's revelatory devotional to the youth in the world was really transformative to me. I think, especially as someone who's felt so much like an outsider everywhere, like I felt like I don't quite fit in the U.S. Um, For most of my life, I felt like an imposter saying I'm an American, even though I'm an American citizen. I love America more than anyone. I've just felt like, do I really fit in? And um, when I've been back in Iran, I don't quite fit in there because I have an accent. And so I've had to grapple with how to unpack this. But you know, what is my prevailing identity? Is it an Iranian American? Is it a woman of color? I mean, neither of these identities have brought me joy or completeness and or unity with my brothers and sisters. And so I prefer to focus on my identity as a child of God, a covenant keeping disciple of Christ. It's so empowering for me to remember that I come from heavenly parents and recognizing that only through living the gospel that can we, you know, heal these deep wounds of hurt and division that we have individually for me or or societally, you know, for others. And I think Christ just recognizes all of our pains, including racism. He suffered all of it so that, you know, we can overcome because he's overcome. And I was just so profoundly touched this last year. It's really kind of transformed my identity. Hearing from Brother Ahmed Corbett of the Young Men's Presidency, uh, he spoke to some Salt Lake Stakes and he said that healing racism and unity can only come through recognizing that we are all divine and treating each other as brothers and sisters. And I love that because I, you know, studying race and dealing with criminal justice, I've been to a lot of things discussing racial bias and, you know, racial unity. And I think that is really the answer. It resonates as such truth. If we can recognize our divinity and treat each other as such, that will really heal all of the divisions of our day. Absolutely. And I, you know, one thing I always think about, and I think this is why President Nelson's talk to the youth was so important, is 
everything in this crazy world that we live in makes more sense when we view it through that lens of I am a child of God and everyone around me is a child of God. And then we operate from there moving forward. And I think that changes has the ability to change everything. Shima, thank you so much. This has been amazing. You are so, so great. And I am grateful for the chance to to learn from you and to share your goodness with a lot of people that will listen to this episode. My last question for you is, what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, you know, I'm a super fan of you and this podcast. And I've said this to you privately, and I'm going to say it to you publicly, but I believe that you are the Oprah of the Church of Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful for your thoughtful questions. And you just bring so much light to the world. And I wanted to say that before I answered, because I know then you can't edit it out. <laughs> for for the record, for the record, Shima, I think you're ridiculous in saying that, but I do take it as a big compliment. So thank it's you. You true. may proceed. It's true. Okay. For For me, to be all in on the gospel of Jesus Christ is to recognize not at an ethereal level, but on a daily practical level that the greatest single act that's ever taken place on this earth is the atonement of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That I need to recognize that because my Savior suffered and died for me, that I'm filled with His grace and love in never-ending abundance, despite my mistakes that I've made and will make, and that I'm not asked as well to judge anyone else's actions. So I need to love my neighbors and my enemies. And as President Nelson said, spend a fair share of my time with him and his service, and that I can change my thoughts to more loving ones, and that I must forgive those who harm me. I must focus on the massive beams in my eyes rather than the tiny motes in other people's eyes that I need to understand that I need God's grace, just like a person convicted of a crime. And maybe I need it even more and that I might allow Christ's atonement to work through me daily and to continue to progress and have joy and improve incrementally each day. And also with gratitude that when I do make the same mistakes over and over, that Christ is my greatest cheerleader and that he will continue to forgive me as long as I continue to try to follow him. So well said. Shima, thank you so much. I I appreciate this. And I know that so many will appreciate the the chance to hear your words. So thank you. Thank you. You're the best. Following our interview, Shima told me she thought a lot more about the temple and why going consistently has made a significant difference in her life. I loved what she said and asked if she would be willing to share it in a voice memo. Aside from the fact that it's easier on a scheduling or habitual basis, we live in a fallen world. So going to spend a little time in the house of God or the divine realm can feel foreign. But the more often we go, the more we remember that we are divine and that our eternal destiny is with God. So we feel a sense of belonging there. We also allow God to nudge us in the ways we need to change to feel even closer to Him and provide Him the proximity to pour love and blessings on us and to compound our joy so that we can better face the world when we leave. We are so grateful to Shima Boffman for joining us on today's episode. Big thanks to Derek Campbell of Mix It Six Studios for his help with this episode. And thank you so much for listening. We'll look forward to being with you again next week.